Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. There's surprisingly an alligator in the... There's a surprising Surprisingly. Alligator. <laughs> surprisingly, there's an alligator in the cafeteria. There's an alligator. That works. There's yeah. an alligator. Yeah. Surprise. That's yeah. actually yeah. a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey, see? See, that's how it happens. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Aloha. We are also joined today by Jenny Hogan, a comedian, writer, and author of the book Toxic Femininity in the Workplace and the forthcoming I'm More Datable Than a Plate of Refried Beans out in May. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how lampooning and satirizing toxic workplaces could maybe, just maybe, help us reform them. But before we unpack that funny stuff, let's let's check it in. Let's check it in. So, Ginny, we always do a check-in round on this podcast. Today will be no different. I am going to ask a question, and the three of us will answer it in turn. And the question for today is one Allie asked this morning, and I enjoyed, which is, what is something that has surprised you this week? And we will start with Aaron, then Jenny, then me. I'll tell you what has surprised me this week is that suddenly I don't like eating all the stuff that I like to eat. What? So I'm starting to fall apart over here. Like I had I had a Chipotle lunch that I was just thoroughly unsatisfied with. <sighs> so I am on the look for new cuisine. Listeners, send me your ideas. The McDonald's stock just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny, what about you? I'm surprised by how much I'm enjoying the cold weather. I'm in New York, and I had been in Los Angeles the past, like, three winters, so I really thought that uh, I was going to hate it so much. But I'm so excited about the cold. It's so fun to go. I like to go running in the cold. I don't know if that's lame of me to admit, but, yeah, I'm loving it, and I'm shocked. <laughs> nice. Ask me again in February, though, and I might totally hate it. <laughs> When you're four months in and you're just walking through that ankle deep yes, exactly. slush yeah. on the yeah, corners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that surprised me as recently as this morning was that workmen showed up at our house unexpectedly at 630 in the morning and oh, no. uh, had not told our contractor or me <laughs> or my husband who's traveling. And so I literally in bed as my dogs are losing their minds, I'm texting my contractor to be like, do you know three large men? in a burgundy suburban and did you send them to our house because <laughs> they're here, to they're get me. here <laughs> and that they seem official but i'd like to know for sure before i go out there and ask what they're doing at our house they were in <laughs> fact they were there to dig a trench but you know it would be great if people would text first that would be ideal or come after eight either way 
Well, speaking of that tragedy, today's topic is when comedy meets tragedy in the workplace. <laughs> and I guess we want to start by asking you, Jenny, why did you want to call your book Toxic Femininity in the Workplace? What are you poking fun at? What does that really mean for readers? Yeah, it's funny because it, it's not clear. So I it came from a New Yorker article that I wrote called Examples of Toxic Femininity in the Workplace. And it was my first New Yorker article. And I think I wrote it like honestly, like late 2017, like so long ago. And everyone was talking about toxic masculinity because it was kind of like the first couple months of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like toxic femininity was like a kind of a funny idea. So I wrote that article. And that article actually is like a parody of, of what would happen if a workplace were toxically feminine. But that's just one article. And then the book kind of just turned into making fun of men in the workplace. So it doesn't really have that much to do with toxic femininity. Um, <laughs> but I think it's kind of like a catchy pun that people sort of took to. Yeah, it's so funny. And I loved yeah. it very much. And as soon as <laughs> I started you. reading it, I was just like, is this a parody, though? Or is this the <laughs> first 10 years of my working life? Because, yeah. you know, yeah, but it's <laughs> called Toxic Femininity, but it's not about women being toxic, even though the original article is. Awesome. So certainly, as I read your book, I found I, I I truly did lol a lot of times and found it very relatable in so many ways. I am curious what lived experience and musings of yours, if any, inspired that original New Yorker piece? And how did that end up turning into a full blown book? Definitely. Yeah. So I worked in the tech industry for three years. And then before that, I was a math major, and I was in the statistics grad school program. So I've been in these all male environments for a really long time, mostly male. And so it's definitely very much inspired by my coworkers in the tech industry. But because it's so heightened, like, I feel like there are kind of like a couple, like in the tech industry, there's sort of like, a baseline layer of sexism that comes from it just being all men. And then there are like every, like one in every like 20 men is like particularly bad. So I feel like the ones that feel the, the pieces in the book that feel really extreme and are based on like a man being crazy. Those are really based on like probably like four total men. And then the pieces that are kind of like, oh, this is what it's like to just be surrounded by men and kind of like have them really want you to be friends with the other women or just sort of feel a little bit, on the outside, those are sort of based on like the general vibe. But I do think like a lot of my coworkers were really supportive of the book. My former coworkers, they like came to a book signing in San Francisco. They bought it, like, male coworkers. So I don't think that they felt super attacked. I think it's kind of clear that like the ones that are specific are about these like really aggressively bad guys. Yeah, I, I love the quiz question somewhere in your book where it's like, you know, do do within your first week, did the other women point to the person who is most likely to sexually harass you? And I was like, oh, I've been, I've been in that meeting. Or someone pulls <laughs> yeah. you aside like right after orientation and they're like, just watch out for that guy, especially if yeah. you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. a fun initiation. I, I am curious. Obviously, you're a hilarious writer and, and comedian and that seems to have bubbled up while you were working in tech. Was it a response to what you were seeing and experiencing? Was it always present in your, you know, career aspirations, like how do those two worlds collide? And when did you decide to go full time comedy writer? Yeah, they collided in a really silly way. Basically, I was interning at Facebook when I was in grad school. And, and at Facebook, they give you free ad credit. So I thought this was so dumb, because I was like, who wants Facebook ads? But I ran like, dating ads for myself as a joke to like, see if <laughs> If they took and then I wrote a blog post called like, should you make Facebook your new dating app? And it, it was like kind of funny. Kind of, it was but I was like pretty serious about trying to do some statistics on the numbers, but there just like were no numbers. So then I kept doing more of those with different apps, trying to figure out how to date off various apps. I wrote one called like coffee meets bagel meets me that was like, 
it's just like someone put it, this is such a weird story, but I, I feel like my comedy career began when this article went viral. It was like, and it went viral on Hacker News. It was like on the front mm. page for like two days, which is like basically like the tech version of Reddit. And like everyone I knew read Hacker News. So like every guy I'd ever gone out with off Hinge, like, saw the article and it was like about like me doing analytics on my first dates and like they like called or like texted to be like which one am I like which uh, you know like it's aggregate but I want to know specific you're like and Taylor I'm, Swift yeah <laughs> it was really insane honestly I was so shocked and the guy who put it on Hacker News like I hooked up with him like years later which was just very random and I had kind of forgotten at that point that he'd done that but after that I started doing stand-up probably like a year later I, I was at a tech company sometimes I have startups like if you're not a manager, if you're like an individual contributor, you can just have like a month where you don't have very much work because it's so disorganized and they don't really assign you anything. So I had like a real lull because my boss had left. So I took a stand-up comedy class and that's <laughs> that's kind of when it really launched. And then I didn't even, I never like intended to become a full-time comedian or full-time writer. I just needed a break from doing both tech and stand-up because I had a year of like a pretty intense tech job and then doing stand-up for like five hours a night and I was just like unbelievably burnt out. So I quit my job and I was going to take like a couple months off, which was kind of easy to do in the tech industry at the time. Like I feel like it was sort of like a hot market for like data engineering. It probably still is. I haven't been, I haven't looked into it in a while. But then I just, I moved back home and I started writing for a bunch of websites and then I kind of never got back to tech. So I'm very curious, this is a super random, but I'm in the market to learn something new right now. And yeah. I'm wondering what made you like, so you had a little free time because nobody remembered that you needed work to do at your job. Yeah. <laughs> you're hanging out. And like, why stand up? Like, what about that? Were you like, you know what? Of anything I could do at night, stand up <laughs> comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because I'm not a stand up fan. I never was like someone who watched stand up specials and I'm still not. Um, and I, I've now seen so much stand up just from having to do it every night. And it, I am pretty bored of it. Um, but I think like, I think if I'd been in New York, I would have done like UCB and I'm very mm -hmm. grateful I wasn't because I don't think UCB was as good of a way for me to break in a standup, but San Francisco just basically only had a standup scene. Like there were no other comedy scenes. I'm also really impulsive. And when I get an idea into my head, like I need to execute on it within like a week or it's gone basically. And like, I think I decided I wanted to do standup and there was a standup class like starting that week. And so I was and just like, this that. is it. Yeah, like if there had been an improv class starting that week instead, I think my life would have been totally different. But like, <laughs> I don't know. I also had been doing so much online dating and I was like kind of out of a relationship that, and we were kind of still seeing each other. Like, and I just didn't want to like go back into that. Like, I feel like I could have gone, just gotten really into dating apps again, but I kind of wanted to go in a different direction. You're like, should I learn a skill or should I go on a hundred dates? And you're like, exactly. learn a skill. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I yeah. think that was, that seems like a very wise choice at that fork in the road. Yeah. I wish I had learned a more um, lucrative skill, but stand up it was. <laughs> but before that you did tech, which is a quite lucrative skill. So what drew you to that? Was that equally serendipitous? A little bit actually. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. My life seemed, I feel like, yeah. Okay. So basically in my senior year of college, I didn't know what to do. So I applied for grad school and I was going to get a PhD in UT Austin because I had a boyfriend who lived in Austin and then we broke up and then like I didn't want to do that anymore <laughs> so I started at a different PhD program in New York but I also didn't really want to do it. I just had I was like so late and it was kind of weird for me to change my plans and they they sort of accepted me anyway so I knew as soon as I'd started that PhD program that I should start like thinking about probably dropping out 
And that's kind of when I started looking into tech. Like for any particular reason or, or was there, or was there like a flyer like similar to stand up? Was there just like, did you get served a Facebook ad that was like, you should become a data scientist? And you're like, all right. <laughs> I think it's like, I, as I was a math major and I think it's like, as a math person, it was like, you could do data science, you could do something finance related, which felt like a lot of hours. I don't know. I really wanted a job that I didn't have to work a ton of hours. And my parents work in finance and it, it seems really hard and time intensive and I'm not like a lazy person I just I thought I would be unhappy if I had some finance job that I do like 16 hours a day and I was like maybe if I have a tech job that I do like eight hours a day tech jobs though at least my tech jobs were more like four or five hours a day um (laughs) they were pretty awesome (laughs) the way I did them it was pretty quick um (laughs) but yeah I think I just didn't feel I felt like there was just like a narrow set of things that I because I had these technical skills and it seemed really stupid not to use them. Now I have a totally different perspective, which is like, I can't be in a cage by my own, like caged by my own skill set, basically. And I just have to, I can't like, it's like a sunk cost if I spent time developing a skill, you know, maybe I won't, even though it is a sunk cost, like I, I don't have to use it just because I have it. But at the time, I thought I had to use my tech skills. And all my friends lived in San Francisco, like a lot of my friends from college. So I just uh, got a tech job there. It's the inertia of it. I am getting some chaos math energy, though, from the whole career adventure. I am curious. So there are a bunch of moments in the book that we were laughing our asses off about that it sounds like are inspired by, you know, IRL stuff. Yeah. Are there a few examples from toxic femininity that were actually ripped from real life in some way, shape or form that you want to talk about? So many. The one that's like, thank yous for the man who um, generously helped me negotiate my salary uh, there was this guy I knew in San Francisco. He didn't work with me. He was like a friend of a friend. And we also like partied a lot. And I feel like I would see him at parties maybe like once a month or like out at bars. And I just remember one time he like I was in between jobs. I was like doing a job hunt. And he like cornered me and asked if I like had any offers. And I was like, yeah, I'm about to take this one offer. And he was like, how much are they paying you? And I was like, you can't just ask me that. Like, you don't even know me. And then he was like, did you negotiate your salary? And I was like, it's none of your business. And then he just kept going and going. And what was so stupid <laughs> is like, he kept citing all these like things that everyone knows. He was like, did you know that women get paid less than men? <laughs> and like, he was like, it's like, did you know that people who negotiate their salaries end up with higher salaries? And I just like, I was so offended because I had negotiated my salary and I was happy with my salary. And I just like the assumption that he thought that I would just have not negotiated it because I was a woman. I was like, I feel like I much just prefer flailing it. without yeah, it, like, really. Yeah. Thank it was God very, you ran into that guy at a party. Yeah. <laughs> and then he started a consultancy to help women negotiate their salaries, which was so Stop nice. It. Of course. Of I course don't he did. Yeah, okay. I actually think it was probably a consultancy to help people negotiate their salaries, but he only but we targeted know. We can women. read between <laughs> the lines. Yeah, well, he that, targeted uh, women because we don't know how to use the internet, obviously. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no woman has ever like read Lean In or something and gotten that advice from any other source. <laughs> That's amazing. I, w- I was watching a panel yesterday that I will not I will not discuss where, but there were panelists that were male and a panelist who was female. And the thing that I could not stop tuning into, so the female panelist was just like running circles around these guys. And... Every time the the middle dude said something in response to her comment, he started by 
telling her whether it was a good comment or not. Uh, and I yeah. seriously want to be like, bro, nobody fucking asked you to grade her comment. Like, <laughs> yeah. first of all, she clearly knows more than you. Second of all, like, you, this is a panel of peers. Like, right. you're not yeah. the adjudicator of who made a good point or not. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know. It's a different flavor of the same thing, but it's just like, hey, how about I keep it to yourself? Because It's a asked. flavor of the of the actually phenomenon, Ronnie, that uh, you highlighted for me. Jenny, do you want to know that I have banned the word actually from my from my male <laughs> colleagues at the I ready? It's great. a working agreement yeah. that we have because yeah. there is truly no situation in which I need to hear that word out of their mouths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. I think Unless that's it's to describe that there's an alligator in the lunchroom. You yeah. know, that's... You can just say, there's an alligator, and I will believe you. <laughs> you know, or... Yes. The- the synonym for, for people that I invite, and this is not just for men because women use actually in an obnoxious way, just not as frequently and usually not directed towards someone they think they know more than, is just use surprisingly. Like, mm-hmm. I was surprised by this, not I will correct you. I will qualify mm-hmm. it. Yeah. 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 It's a good it's a good one for us all to eliminate, but particularly white dudes. There's surprisingly um, an alligator in the there's a surprising surprisingly. Alligator. <laughs> surprisingly, there's an alligator in the cafeteria. There's an alligator. That works. There's yeah. an alligator. Yeah. Surprise. That's yeah. actually yeah. a good idea. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey. See? See, that's how it happens. Yeah. I know. I did it on purpose just you to highlight did it on for purpose, our learners. But I bet like yeah. that doesn't feel weird to people out there. Right. They're just yeah. like, thank God Aaron said whether that was smart or not. <laughs> Yeah. Or we wouldn't have yeah. ever known. We would never yeah. would have known if these two women were just like talking foolish. It felt foolishness. very yeah. normal coming out. It was no, so it did not. Stop <laughs> it. You don't do that. You know better. I try not to. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, hopefully as much as we're enjoying what we're hearing, a review would mean a lot to us or forward the show to someone who needs it or like or subscribe or just like do something to be helpful to us because it really means a lot to us and we really appreciate it. So one of the things that you said as you were describing your sort of windy and somewhat kismet journey to this point is this idea that you don't have to use skills just because there's a sunk cost associated with them. And I I can't tell you how many people, and and honestly, a a lot of them are women. I'm sure this happens to everyone, but a lot of them are women who are like, I went to so much school and I spent so much time or I spent so much money or my parents spent so much money or whatever. And now I'm sort of stuck in this trajectory and staring 40 years down the line and just thinking like, how am I going to get through this? I have several friends who this has happened to who, who are therapists, who did a lot of school to become therapists and then three months into being therapists, we're like, oh, fuck, I don't want to do this. So I'm just sort of curious, like, how did you cultivate the idea that you can learn something deeply, learn it well enough to do it as a profession, and then just bail on it because you don't want to? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start by saying that I'm like a privileged person. So it was always kind of like given that I would go to college and that my parents would pay for it. And I also have like a safety net that kind of allowed me to take a creative leap. And I don't say that to be like overly PC. It just because I feel like it it's like necessary context for me to explain mm-hmm. how I made the choices I did. But yeah, I, I think because my skill set, like in college and, and in grad school, I studied like technical skills. I was a programmer and data science. I was like on the engineering team. That's kind of like 
at least at the time and in the circles I was in, that was like what everyone was saying was like the most useful skill set to possibly get and like the most 21st century skill set. Like, I think data scientists, there was like some famous article that where they were described as like the sexiest job of the 21st century, which is I remember not. that article. Yeah, I do. I, I actually do remember yeah. the, reading that headline. Yeah. Wow. It was just like such a hot field. Like, and the work I did as a data scientist was so boring and it was probably not very dissimilar from what like a consultant at McKinsey does, except I worked fewer hours. Like, it I wasn't like a sexy. lot of time. No, it was not sexy. <laughs> I like was in Excel a lot. I made a lot of PowerPoints. Like, it was not, I was not doing like exciting algorithmic stuff. Not that algorithms are even that exciting once you get into them, but um, the cultural conversation, like, people just thought it was like, the most lucrative growing field to be working in. And then I switched, I left that for like a career that is not, I'm not even totally still sure is still a career. Like I, I, one thing that has happened as I've gotten further into comedy is there are more and more people who I thought were professional comedians who are definitely not, you know, and like Mm. all have side jobs and that kind of thing. And yeah, doing that was, was hard. Like I, there were so many people who said things to me that I found pretty offensive at the time that were like, oh, you can always like come back or like what, or more, even more directly, like, why would you do that? Like, what, or like, that sounds mm-hmm. like a fun hobby or like a fun thing to like take time off and work on. And just like people kind of not taking seriously that I wanted comedy to be my career. But I think like in terms of coming to decide that I didn't have to use my skill set, it was just a matter of like, I had used my skill set for three years, and it was not making me happy. And it felt more stupid to have like, gotten this very expensive education, and then wound up in a career that made me miserable than it did to just like, take a risk and do something that was at least fun for me. And yeah, that's kind of it. But it's hard. I mean, I am now in a field that doesn't require like a college degree. I don't think that I don't think that in writing jobs in general, they ever really ask someone's educational background. I still know I know a lot of well educated people in comedy. And I think that my background has helped with like the content I've created, of course, and everything like it's I'm not, I don't regret any like my real world experience because I write about it. But yeah, I definitely sometimes feel like it was like a waste of time for me to do all these other things. But at the same time, I think it's I think it's probably not because I sometimes think about like switching out of writing into something more stable and it would not be tech. It would be something that I think would be a lot more satisfying, even though it also would not be like using my technical skills. And I think like I wouldn't have had the kind of strength to do that, which I'm not even sure I want to do. But I think if I hadn't left tech at the time that I did um, when I was still young and still very much like, oh, if this doesn't work out, I can go back to school. I can go back to tech, whatever. I don't think I ever would have. So I'm glad that I like took a risk when I did. But it it is it, not great to like leave a job where you're still you're like in demand and you make a lot of money and recruiters email you a lot to then like feel like I've just feel like I've been like banging on the door of Hollywood for many years and it's hard I don't know but I I don't I found it worthwhile it is surprising to me when folks look back with regret on anything like that though because it feels like a fallacy where you just like you're you and your comedy or your writing or your story or your whatever the hell you're doing like it wouldn't have been the same if something had been different and maybe it'd be better, but maybe it'd be worse. Yeah. I, I just find that funny. And off, and often I turn to, especially as I age and need ways to cope egoically, I turn to like stories of Bram Stoker who wrote Dracula when he was in his sixties. Yeah. And it's like, does he wish he had started with a lit degree? Yeah. I don't know. Probably not like a good book and it worked out. So I, I feel like, yeah, we have to just, play the hand yeah and not be too stuck in different times yeah definitely and like Ginny you and I have had very different paths and 
I uh, did 10 plus years of working in super, super traditional <laughs> environments before I decided that the rest of my working life was about disrupting those environments. And yeah. you have a different level of like, you have a different body of experience and content and anecdote and empathy to draw from when you actually did it. It's like yeah. you did the thing that you're making fun of. I did the thing that now I'm shitting on on this podcast every single week. Like that's that's not nothing, you know? So I do think it's interesting when it's it's interesting to reflect on these things and be like, would I have been good at this in the way I am if I hadn't done that? Maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's just a, it's a and fun thing to ponder. Know. We'll never know. I hope I write Dracula part six when I'm 60 <laughs> is the point of that yeah. story. Innovative yeah. book, all written in letters, mm. letters to different people. Mm -hmm. anyway. I mean, a lot of people copy that shit later. <laughs> so I'm curious about feedback from readers. I have to assume I am not, uh, <laughs> I'm not the target audience necessarily, but I have to assume that a lot of people saw themselves in the book and felt the need to reach out to you to maybe get in your DMS and, and break it down. What has that been like? What stories have you heard? What has the, reaction been and how have you felt about it um yeah my dms are accessible always but i do get nice dms about the book i feel like yeah women like dm me to say that you know it, like made them smile it's like a short book i don't you know it can kind of just make someone happy for a an afternoon or something just kind of laughing at the tech industry so it is nice when women get in touch with me about it but men also get in touch with me about it because i think that men are just way bigger dmers in general so they do dm me to like tell me they liked it a lot of men will dm me to tell me they like bought it for their sister or their girlfriend or something which i don't really know what to make of that i don't know if they've even read it i think it's more likely that they want to dm me and then it's a stocking like, stuffer the book is yeah, it is a stocking stuffer. It's like a small book. Yeah, you guys should buy it. It's like small and cute. <laughs> and men like to give it to their girlfriends. So if you have a girlfriend, you can get her that book. <laughs> I mean, I think mo for the most part, the people who reach out are nice. Uh, one really ridiculous thing, though, is like, I think before the book came out, somehow it got like, put into some like men's right Reddit. But they were like praising uh -oh. it because they assumed that it was going to be about like how toxic women are in the workplace. So then I got followed on Twitter by a bunch of Twitter accounts that were like, feminism is a cancer. And like that kind wow. of thing. It was wild. I don't know. I mean, I didn't block them. I don't know if they still follow me. I hope they bought the book. That is that is very funny. So we have a we have a little mirror image of that at the ready because at the ready as a handle on Twitter is often referred to by some right groups about like their readiness to get into it, or I don't know exactly what they use it for, but routinely in our feed stuff will come oh, up God. where people are like, We're at the ready. Oh, and no. We're like, it's a militia not? that they're trying yeah. to raise up. And we're like, uh, yeah. I'm not sure we're your uh, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thanks for the follows. <laughs> oh, <no>. Thanks for the <laughs> retweet. Um, I was wondering, as you were saying that, have you ever gotten a response from a man who was like, uh oh, I see myself. And now I'm on a journey to. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Have no? I ever fixed a man? No, I've never fixed one. Have, has a man ever fixed himself because he read Toxic Femininity and then he wanted to tell you about the way that you His helped journey. him understand that he needed to do that work? No, at least not Dang, in a DM that I've Ginny? seen. No, I don't think that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> God, I was really yeah. hoping you were like, yeah, there's actually like an online community and they're very supportive of each other group, and, and they yeah. just uh, are doing the work. But no, uh, <laughs> the dream, but no. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, they're doing the work to provide continuous fodder for the stand up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Toxic femininity is so funny. Obviously, we both think so, but also serious in many ways. I mean, the topic that it covers has real life consequences. So how did you balance the sort of fluffy with the super fucked up while you were writing this book? And were there any experiences that felt like they were too rough to to be able to tackle with humor? Yeah, I mean, I had like... I do. I did have pretty rough experiences in terms of like sexual harassment from my boss. It was a former boss. I don't even think that he's super covered in the book because I feel like the book is like a little lighter than that. They, I mean, there's like mentions of sexual harassment, but yeah, I I think the book is kind of more like the the stuff that's easier to make fun of. Um, but it's a heavy theme. But I think that the reason it doesn't it didn't feel heavy writing it because I was so used to it. It was like I had lived that for um, four years, and I think it's like one, like I hear people make jokes about things that sound very traumatic to me, but Mm -hmm. to them it's like, because it's their life and they're close to it, it's easy for them to make jokes about it. And the same goes for things I make jokes about and I'll hear people say things that I've said are too dark. And I, it had not occurred to me that it was too dark. So I think if you're like close to a subject matter, it just doesn't feel as dark, I guess. But I also, I don't think the book is super dark. I think, but I mean, parts of it are, yeah. Stuff about like sexual harassment in the workplace is dark for sure. But yeah, I, I don't. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like heavy or like kind of revisiting trauma when I wrote it. I mean, given given the heaviness and and the need, uh, let's fix everything. So, what kinds of policies or practices or just like awareness do you think is necessary to start to maybe reform some of what you experienced? Because obviously, it makes for great comedy, but also, wouldn't it be better if it wasn't like that? And what would you? advise what would you recommend having lived it yeah i mean i'm so out of the loop with what's going on in the tech industry that i don't know if i'm i feel super qualified to give an answer i would say like it's the same stuff it's the same stuff yeah (laughs) i mean i think that uh, one thing that was a big problem is when they measure diversity statistics they would measure people of color and they would measure women and they would not measure women of color like that mm. specifically, I think that that was like mm. a big oversight that they need to be working on. There's something about the tech industry where anything like the newest thing is always the most male dominated. So it's like, you know, like Google mm. and Facebook probably have, I say probably, I, I feel comfortable saying that Google and Facebook have a way higher percentage of women than like brand new startups. And there's something about like, they treat the integration of women as a thing to be solved on like V2 or V3 or like, as opposed to being kind of like baked into the culture of the company. And I think that that is a pretty big problem that they should work on solving. And I feel like, you know, like cryptocurrency is like all men. Yes, we were were just talking about this this morning. The entire Web3 movement is like heavy up on, you know, young white men for a hot second. And then later it'll get more diverse. And it granted, it's like a little bit better on balance, but it is still very much that pattern. Why is that? Why is it that when there is ground to be broken, it tends to be broken and then dominated by white men for a for a period of time? So the lady Dignan and I were just talking about this the other night and we right. really got into it. And and what was interesting about it is it seems like the self-importance and the self-serving and the like I'm going to design the world to serve me and do what I want to do and I'm going to like be bold enough to just go claim and go stake that whole narrative and that whole pattern in culture around men, I think is literally how this stuff plays out where it's like, why are video games all for men? Mm. 
Because men are like, I'm going to go build video games. Now, why could they do that? Because of all these privileges and patterns in culture that there are more opportunities. There's more funding. There's more this. There's more that. Like, There's just more capital and more willingness to claim that capital at, at the intersection of that identity. And so it just happens again and again and again where it like compounds privilege. And so, yeah, like the next new space, of course, if there's a 50% advantage that you're going to get funded and get the chance and be willing to take the risk, then once again, we're going to see the same pattern. So I don't know if, if y'all would augment that with other takes or, or maybe help me dissect my own biases in that. But that is definitely the like engine underneath the hood that I'm seeing. Yeah, I also think, I mean, when I was in the tech industry, like the two most famous women were Marissa Meyer and Sheryl Sandberg, and neither of them were entrepreneurs. Marissa Meyer was a, a, a programmer. Sheryl Sandberg was not a programmer. She was just, like a business person. I was meant to say just a business person, which is offensive, but <laughs> she was like on the ad side of of Google and Facebook. And and then Marissa Meyer, I don't really know what she's done, since, but like she, she started at Google and that's what she was famous for, but she didn't start Google. So I think like the fact that these, the like, the women to look up to at the time hadn't even started their own companies kind of makes it harder for it to seem like, whereas, you know, like the men everyone idolizes, it's like Mark Zuckerberg and I don't, I mean, not anymore, but at the time, probably still now, actually, I don't really know. Gross. <laughs> tech um, but, uh, and then like now it's like Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know. I feel like it's so risky for a woman to like break any new ground. Cause if she like messes it up then everyone thinks that like women can't do it you know (laughs) like it's hard I mean when I was like a math major I was not like a great math major I was pretty like middle of the road and but I would be the only girl and I felt like oh if I say something stupid all these boys are gonna like think that girls can't do math you know like it was like that so I feel like Elizabeth Holmes I don't know it I think it, it seems scary to be like oh what if I mess up and it's like Elizabeth Holmes and then people don't want to fund women anymore or something yeah it's interesting, like the the connection that I, I would draw between what you're both saying is just there's just thousands of years of societal expectation that men like conquer and women care. And I and so it, I think I think to your point, Jenny, like it feels risky uh, to upend those roles, um, especially in places that are so dominated by a gender. And and I and 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 probably in some way, in some respects, like the reverse of that is true, too. Like I dated someone for a long time who was an architect and he really, really, really wanted to become a city planner. And like city planning is dominated by women because it Mm. is about caring for something that needs to nourish and flourish. And architecture is dominated by men because it's about, you know, imprinting your ego in a skyline, literally just being like, what if this was more like me? What if everyone had to look at something that looked like what I like to look at, <laughs> which is like, you know, that's like what found like so fundamentally what architecture is. And so I do think that there is a lot of this, like there's a lot of this history and a lot of this pattern that is difficult to, to overcome when, when it seems like, Oh, there's a new place to break ground and build a basement. And the guys are like, get a shovel. And the women are like, I'll make <laughs> it nice once you've dug a hole. Yeah. I mean, on a dark comedy note, I wouldn't worry about like ruining how many women get funded by not doing well because the numbers suck. <laughs> so yeah, just you can't make it any worse than it is. Get out there and, and bust it up. Yeah. Well, yeah. Get out there and bust it up is just like that's just what we're doing. That's what we're doing yeah. everywhere. Yeah. That's exactly. the point of I, life. Yeah. I just feel like yeah. I know that the next woman who does something corrupt, everyone's going to be like, oh, it's Elizabeth Holmes all over again, you know? 
And it's just going to, yeah. I attack those people on Twitter though, because I'm, I'm just like, no, all of work is toxic. Like it has nothing to do with the gender. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I feel like honestly, like let women be corrupt CEOs or corrupt entrepreneurs sometimes like men get to do it. Like, yeah, yeah, all the time. Exactly. It should be our privilege to behave like monsters for like 500 years. No, I think we we deserve like 500 years. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that really brings us to the title, right? Toxic femininity in the workplace. Maybe it's time has come. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love it. So, so speaking of some headlines, what are some of your favorite representations of work culture and life in pop culture? Oh, favorite representations in pop culture. I mean, I'm obsessed with Succession. Like, does that count? It's not really a standard workplace. Oh my god. Yeah, I don't feel like. I know exactly what's going on with the company specifically, but it is like a cool representation of these like power struggles where it's really unclear if the company is like even making money. Like there's some like legacy (laughs) media corporation and they're paying out like billions of dollars just to like stay on top, but it's unclear where the revenue comes from. I feel like that kind of is like sort of a metaphor for something or not even a metaphor, just the actual thing. What are your, what are some some of yours? I mean, probably my most favorite workplace anything ever is 30 rock oh yeah that's a great one yeah i mean there's just like there's nothing about it that i don't love yeah i mean i would plus one to that i've also been a longtime fan of watching old episodes of kitchen nightmares hell yeah which brings the small business workplace to life in a profound way and you just see like it's not just the big companies that are fucked up right it's Almost every group at every size. So yeah, that that definitely gets me going. I think the idea that work could be good, that it could be fun and not fucked up, it's hard to point to a piece of content or media that actually tells that story. Yeah. Well, it right? would, how much fun would that be to watch? Well, there could be something else going on, right? It could be incidental <laughs> to the plot. There are also you know? zombies. Yeah, exactly. Like, work is great, but zombies. All right. Yeah, I mean, I would watch that. I'd be curious about that. I don't know. What I'm, what I'm sensing coming out of this conversation is that if work gets better, we're going to lose a lot of material. Yeah, I think that's true. So, so Jenny, we've talked a lot about toxic femininity. I would love uh, to hear a bit more about your forthcoming book, including how you got to that title, because, wow, it's, it's a gem. <laughs> Thank you. It's a book. It's a similar style. It's short satire pieces about dating. It follows the trajectory of a romantic relationship and it ends with the person deciding to never date ever again, which I do feel (laughs) at the end of every relationship. And it's really silly because I always end up dating again. But I think I wrote the proposal, honestly, like a month before the start of quarantine. And and then we couldn't pitch it because everything like shut down. And then we pitched it like in the first quarantine July. And yeah, I mean, I love satire. I think satire is kind of like the main thing that I do. I write for The New Yorker and that's sort of my like most steady freelance work. So just writing, coming up with like 50 article ideas and then writing them is like so fun for me. And um, Hmm. more kind of like in many ways, like, easier for me to wrap my brain around. I am trying to work to like move into new, new forms of writing, but that one's really comfortable for me and really fun for me. And the name comes from, there's a piece in the book that's actually was originally a McSweeney's piece. And it's actually kind of based on that original blog I wrote about data and dating where I, I don't know if you guys have ever used Tinder smart photos. Um, no, but it, yeah, it's <laughs> we're like, old. we're old. Okay. <laughs> So on Tinder, you can upload like a bunch of pictures and you can either choose which one you want to be your smart, your, your profile picture, or you can um, 
you can use an algorithm that will tell you which Let one is the most popular. Yeah. And oh. I once ran an experiment to like see, you can like use it to assess if you're hotter than people or not, you know, which is like really fucked up. But I, as a joke, ran an experiment to see if I was hotter than a plate of refried beans. And I was. And so I wrote about that for McSweeney's and then that piece is in the book. So that's kind of where the title comes from. Oh, yeah. that's so good. That's very yeah. exciting. And that's going to be out in May. Out in May. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I mean, I don't know where to go from refried beans, so I'm going to call that a great place to draw things to a close. <laughs> Ginny, where can our listeners find out more about you and your wonderful work? I'm on Twitter. I'm really loud on Twitter. Hard to miss me. <laughs> I'm Ginny Hogan underscore <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Nice. Ginny, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank this you. Was this was so fun. And yeah. just great yeah. to have you. Cool. Yeah, it was so fun. Awesome. A uh, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today. Uh, Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and be just a little bit hotter than a plate of refried beans. Get in touch <laughs> with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something, or at least make fun of it.